All right. Well, we are making good headway in the ABAP language, and uh, we are in the midst of, and we'll hopefully finish up in our time together today, talking about uh, things in this discussion set on the ABAP rights statement and various things related to data objects. And in fact, we have pretty much finished our coverage of the rights statement, but we are still, excuse me, taking on some things related to. Uh, the fundamentals of working with data objects. And this is where we left off last time. Um, the idea of a structured data type, and so notice this is something where we in fact have to declare a data type to create this structure. And then, of course, we, and, and this is easy to overlook, bless you, in your development, where once you have completed your types statement, you're not done at, at that point. Um, you have defined a type, but you still have to create a data object or perhaps multiple objects of that type. And so that's the second thing we do. And then after that, we can begin using the data object. And really, the data object works just like other data elements we may employ in our coding, the distinction here being that we list the name of the data object, a dash, and then the name of the field whenever we want to reference individual constituent items that are in a particular structure. And so we talked about this last time, but we really did not get the opportunity to write any code ourselves to practice with this. And so that is where I would like for us to begin in our time together today. And so I have a little quick practice assignment. We'll do this together in our ABOP editor. Uh, define a structure capable of storing a complete address. After doing so, create the structure and, and store data in that. So I'm going to go here to my ABOP editor and uh, call up SE80 here. And I, I make a habit of reusing the same programs here. So, um, you know, I don't know that I would encourage you to do that because you might want to keep some of your older programs, but nonetheless, for our working together in class, this works great. So I'm going to wipe this code out right here and use it for us in our time together today. So we are going to have to take care of declaring this data type. So I begin with the types statement. Uh, the plural part of that is what uh, often can trip people up. And this is technically a chain statement, and so we do employ the colon there after the word types. And then you'll notice as soon as I hit the B, the, the editor here spots me the begin of trying to guess, and then it tried to give me the word mesh after that. We don't want that, so I'll take the begin of, and then I'm going to call this an address type. My personal preference when I'm creating a type is to always um, use the word type in the type name to clarify this is not actually a data object, so that's why I'm calling this address type. End that with a comma. And then now on to the next line of code where we will define the various fields in this. Well, let's just kind of inventory what those are going to be. Um, we'll have a street. Um, we'll have a city. 
will have a state and we'll have a zip code. And that's just what we will have our address structure to be. So I'm going to go ahead and type those in just to, to let you guys know what we're going to take care of here. And now I need to actually define some, some data types for these individual fields here. So street, um, I need to pick a data type for that. And, and realize at this point I have two different choices. What are my two choices here? String is one, and what's the other? C. And if I use C, I'm going to have to decide on a length. Given the context of this, really, it, it really doesn't matter. So I'm going to just employ string here. And so street type string, and that line and a comma to continue my chain statement. City type, and I would not necessarily do this in a program other than for illustration's sake here. But let's assume that we wanted to do this with C instead of string. If we were doing that, then our code would look something like this. City type C length, you know, let's say 20. And, and the, the downside of using C is I have to pick a length. And so I have constrained it to a length of 20, which is a design decision that may ultimately prove to be problematic. I'm not working with the database or anything like that at this point. So um, I don't really have anything else to provide guidance in this situation. Uh, state. Um, now for this, let's assume we're going to store each state as a two-letter abbreviation. If we knew that to be the case, then we definitely would want to use C here at, with a length of two. That, that makes perfect sense given the fact that we're going to set all of our states to be two-letter abbreviations. And, and then for zip, what would be an appropriate type here? Yeah, this is a numeric string, and with n, it is an incomplete data type, so I do have to specify a length, and we're just going to use the five-digit zip here. Now, what I cannot do at this point is, is put a period there and call it good. You'll notice that kind of curiously enough, the editor has not turned anything red at this point because it really, in the kind of checking that it does, doesn't really note that I have left my types declaration dangling. Uh, but in fact, I, I have to wrap things up here by terminating line 15 in this code with a comma. And then I come back and do end of address type. Now, please take note of how I have indented this. As a point of fact, after typing line 11, when I hit the return key, it automatically gave me the indenting you saw on line 12. And as I got to the end of each line, ended it with a comma and hit return, it would always bring me back to that same spot. After line 15, though, when I put in the comma and hit enter, um, you know, let's just kind of replay what happened here. So, you know, I, I typed in the comma, I hit enter. Notice it has put me underneath the Z in zip. And, of course, if I do end of, it's going to leave that indented, which I don't want. So sometimes what you're going to have to do here is we hit the enter and say, okay, I'm wrapping this up. I want to go back to the left margin and then do my end of 
address type. So sometimes you are going to have to manually adjust your, your, your indenting because we want it to look like this. Now you will notice that in the editor here to the left of the line we have this little uh, box with a dash in it. That's, that's because that will allow me to roll that up and unroll it. I, I, I never use that feature, but if you have a lot of code and you want to, you know, put some of it on the screen and, and so on, this would give you a way to reclaim some of your screen real estate. All right, so the next thing I have to do here now is actually create one of these. So I will do data address type address type. So now I have one of these objects that I can stuff full of, of information. And so to fill this up, address-street space equals space, single quotes, uh, 212 Elm Street, and that with a period, address-city, equals, single quote, Johnson City, address dash state equals TN, address dash zip equals um, 37615 dot. So now I have filled this structure up. Yes, sir. Yeah, if at this point I, on line 25, I did address-city equals Bristol, I'm just overriding that at this point. Um, another common question I get is, is there any way to shorten the syntax here? You know, on line 20 through 23, is there a way that I could say, okay, always use the data object address and, and thereby cut down on my coding? And the answer to that is no. This is the most succinct way to write the code that you see on lines 20 through 23. Well, my specification did not ask us to do this, but well, let's go ahead and write this guy out just to prove that we have done this correctly. And so I will write, and I'll, I'll go to a new line here on each of these lines, and, and I'll write out address-street. And then I, I like to do this, and I realize you can't as easily do this on your paper as I can do it on the editor here, but I'm going to employ copy and paste, and I will put city on a new line, and then here I'm going to do something a little bit different, do state. Actually, let's do uh, like you would typically on a mailing envelope, so uh, I'm actually I didn't really save that much in my use of copy and paste because I'm going to do the city and then I'm going to output a literal comma and then I am, and you got to kind of watch your syntax here, okay, then I'm going to put an address state and then lastly I need address dash zip and I find myself a lot of times uh, 
you know, I'll save this and I'll run it and then I have to adjust the spacing a little bit to get it just right. So we'll have to see what we actually see in our results here. Uh, run this. Oh, yeah. See, we can see already I have a bit of a problem there. I actually have two things I have to solve. All the white space after Johnson City. I need to clean that up. And that's my, what's that? It's because I put city as 20. Absolutely so. If I had used string there, and let's just let's just observe this real quick. If if this were type string, then let's see what would happen to our output. Notice we don't get that. We still have an extraneous space here, but when I choose 20 like I did here, and I'll go back to that, it, it further emphasizes the way I fix it in this case is for city to kill off the extraneous spaces. I put the, the have to use the star there, and you'll notice as soon as I type that, my left parent turned red as my editor reminding me that in that case, this has to go right up against the slash. Okay, so let's save this guy, and we're still going to have to fix something else, but let's look at where we are. Okay, so I got rid of all that extraneous white space, but I still have this extra guy right here, and how did we say we kill that off? No gap. And that comes after the data object that has given us the gap. And so I come after address dash city space no dash gap. And so I save that and there we go. 212 Elm Street, Johnson City, Tennessee, 37615. So we have uh, done a little bit of review of the write statement and at the same time seen an example of how to create and use a structured data type. Questions? Yes, sir. What happens if we just what now? Ah, okay, yeah, I think somebody asked us that last time. So, so let's do that. Thank you for reminding. I'm just going to comment those guys out. And so the question is, if I do write, just address like this, all right? So I'm going to make sure I save this. And do, 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 address cannot be converted to a character type value is what I got there. Now you might say, well, does that have something to do with my choice of, of uh, data types here? And the answer to that is, is really no. You can see the only thing here that's not character-based is zip. So let's just comment that out. We'll take that out of the mix. And so clearly everything that's left there now is character-based. Let's see what we have here. And um, oh, we're, oh, let's complain about this guy right here. So let's see now what we have happening. And uh, still, it's complaining about that. So that's its way of saying, I, I don't know how to render that to the screen. So some programming languages will let you dump the whole thing to the screen, typically for debugging purposes. Um, but we don't have that ability in ABOP. Other questions? All right, well, I think we just have a couple things uh, fairly minor to clean up here in uh, this discussion. And so 
uh, let's forge ahead. Uh, next slide here, constants allow the specification of fixed value data objects. So you're undoubtedly familiar with the concept of constants. Notice the syntax here. And, and what is notable about constants is what? I realize that's a very vague question, but what observation could we make about constants as a rule that we need to make sure we follow? Numbers, well, it can be number, numbers or, or other data types, so that's not it. What's that? We have the keyword constants in front of it, yes. We have to specify the value at the time the constant is created. So the point of my saying that is, it's very, very similar to the data statement, but we swap out the word constants in place of data, and the value clause has to be there because that's where you establish the actual constant value. If you leave that off, then you have a constant that stores nothing. Yes, sir? That is correct. And, and let's look at this here. Um, we're done with this guy, so I'm just going to erase this program that we spent so much time creating. And uh, let's create a constant here. So, and notice, once again, it's the plural form of the word, even though we're just creating one constant. Constant. Um, and, and I'll do my con type uh, string value I am a constant okay and so now the question is could I do my con equals hello okay so let's save this and let's see what the reaction is uh, the field my con cannot be changed Okay. So this is, in fact, going to be flagged as a, as a syntax error. But otherwise, I can use my con any way that I would typically use a data object. And so here I am a constant, you know, is, is like you see this here. Okay. Other questions? So if you get error, if you think, why Well, no. I, if I do what now? Well, let's see. If, if I do this, I, I have really uh, not done anything useful. Um, and uh, specification missing value, spe it's kind of a curious error message. Value specification missing capacity limit reach. The, the second part of that is really confusing, but it is true nonetheless that the value specification is missing. So uh, we do have to have that there. All right. Yes? No, and, and it's a good point. In ABOP, generally we use reserved words being uppercase, or we use uppercase for reserved words. So um, there's no universal standard that says uh, 
that you should make your constant's name all capitals. If you elect to do that, I don't particularly have a problem with it. In my slides here, I have not gone out of the way to give my data objects really good names because there's not a lot of context to it. But um, you can just follow basically the same naming rules as you do for other data objects. Okay. All right, the next thing I am going to show you is something that you will in fact have to leverage for the sake of your next homework program. And it will also be our first foray into the data dictionary. And that is, there are some system maintained values. Now, technically speaking, these are not constants um, in the sense that you would normally think of constants because, for example, they store things like the time of day and the date, which clearly are not constant values. But they are constants in the sense that the system will always have these available to you and they are something that is universally a part of the ABAP programming language. These system maintained data objects are all grouped together in a structure as opposed to just being individually named. And the structure is named SYST. And if we want to see the individual fields that compose this, then the easiest place for us to do that is by looking in the ABAP dictionary. And so let's visit for the first time, I believe, the ABAP dictionary. And this is transaction SE11. You'll notice the title here, ABAP dictionary initial screen. And notice a couple of things here. Um, we can look at database tables and views. Uh, data types, data groups, domain, search help, lock objects. Some of these things we will do this semester. A couple of these things like type groups are actually considered um, deprecated at this point but are still a part of the system for the sake of backwards compatibility. And notice from this screen we can display something, we can change something, and we can actually create things. And so you will see a little bit later on this semester, maybe this week, if not this week next, that we can go into the ABOB dictionary by way of this screen and this is how we would create a data type or other things in the ABOB dictionary by starting here. But in this case, we want to look at something that is a system maintained um, data type. And so we will go into uh, data type. And notice we, we do have the search ability here. And notice we can search for data elements, we can search for structures, we can search for really all kinds of different things here. And oftentimes we will navigate by way of searching for things. But in this instance, um, it is just as easy for us to type this in, uh, S-Y-S-T, and I want to display this. So let me just review what I just did. I selected data type. I typed in SYST and I hit display. And I am now taken to this screen 
which we will see in a lot of different contexts this semester. But what we are looking at here now is the structure of a structured data type. And so this tells us that it actually has 171 different fields. You will notice, however, a lot of these are designated as obsolete. And so not all of these will be things that we will use. But you can see right away we have some things that are perhaps curious to us like loop indexes and row indexes that are uh, things that we will employ a little bit later in our coding. Um, and, and really, I've not figured out a great way to search this other than just kind of paging through it and, and looking at the individual things that are listed here. Um, I do think you could, for example, highlight component over here and uh, change the, the sort order. I, I think that's true. Let's see, cut, copy, paste, insert row, delete row, expand all, expand include, compress include. Oh, look at that. I don't see immediately here how to change the sort order. So maybe we're just kind of stuck here uh, navigating element by element. But if we keep looking here, the G right above the this right here, that's going to, that's just further, that's the group. And yeah, this guy right here, don't think that's going to do it for us. Now, I, I, yeah, I, I do think there probably would be a way for us to do this, but I'm not immediately seeing what it would be. Um, but notice, for example, we have here, um, and I'm looking for just a couple of things here. Um, one of the fields, this guy right here, uh, that I'm highlighting, M-A-N-D-T will be our friend a little bit later this semester when we start working with databases, but that's the client ID of the current user. So let's say, for example, we needed to know what client number we're running on, and the idea is we don't want to hard code in a client number because we want to write an ABAP program that would run inside of any client. So let's say you wanted to write a program that the user could run, and it would tell them, hey, user, you're running on client number whatever would be the appropriate answer to that. Well, notice we have a field here called M-A-N-D-T that we could incorporate into our coding. So the way we actually reference this is the structure type is S-Y-S-T. It is actually instantiated in the environment in a data object called S-Y. So you look up the SYST data type to see the fields, and then when you actually want to use them, you use the data type SY, or excuse me, the data object name SY. So I'm going to go to my editor here real quick, and so I could write a program that would just simply write out to the user, write colon, new line, um, you are running on client and I've got the slash going the wrong way. I will we'll make that mistake no less than a hundred times this semester, I promise you. 
And normally, for the SY data object by convention, we do typically type these in all capital letters. And so SY-MANDT is going to output that. Now, we might need to clean up our spacing here a little bit. Uh, we'll have to see. But in fact, if I run this, you are running on client 405. And no, that spacing is, is just fine. And in fact, we are logged into client 405. The merit of this is if I were to save this program, you know, activate it, and then it got transported to another system where the, the client number was actually different, this program would always tell the user what their client number actually is. Okay, there are in fact other things in this data structure that are useful for us. Uh, name of the SAP system, uh, operating system of the application server. Let's look at that OPSYS is that one. So if I come up here and change this to uh, OPSYS, you are running on and I'll just get rid of the word client there. And so it now tells me you are running on AIX is the underlying operating system of this particular installation, okay? So this gives me a way to find out a little bit about the operating environment and other things of that sort. One of the two programs that you will write for homework involves you going into the structure, finding the fields that describe certain things that I have specified for you, and producing a little table of output that reproduces this on the screen. The second program that you are going to write involves you defining a structure, filling it with data, and then writing output to the screen. Those are the two programs you're going to have to write. Yes, sir? AIX is a Unix type operating system that is typically associated with IBM hardware. Um, and so um, that's about all I can tell you about that. Okay. Other questions? All right, so I think I had one more observation here. Some values will be fairly persistent in a system. For example, it's unlikely that the underlying operating system of the application server will change. Other things change dynamically based on individual programs. Here's something that you probably have never done in another programming language before, but we will do a lot this semester. You send a command to the database you want to know whether the operation was successful or not, you will get a value back in an SY field that contains your return code from the database. You are in a loop in your program and you want a loop counter. You don't create a data object and manually keep track of the loop because there's an SY data object that serves as a loop counter. So there'll be some things we use SY for this semester that are perhaps um, uh, things that you've not done before, but we will in fact return to using this data object quite a bit this semester. Questions about any of this as we are here now um, 
really at the end of our discussion because I think uh, in the course of our discussion we wound up talking about most of these variants on the right statement except perhaps for the no zero one which is useful for pack numbers to get rid of the the left padding of zeros but we did talk about no gap and skip I don't know that we talked about uline but notice uline is a uh, standalone line of code that will just give me a horizontal line in my in my output technically speaking both uline and skip in are obviously not right statement commands but they go nicely with the right statement so i'm just throwing them in here uh, as an added bonus for being with us in class today okay. questions about any of the things we have talked about here in this set of discussion elements so I want to emphasize one last thing, and that is we have not covered everything there is to know about the right statement. And in fact, there is something that you will want to do using the right statement for the sake of the homework that I have asked you to do. And, and my reminder to you is that the ABOP help is really, really good. And so if I ever want to know about a particular command, you find that command in your code or type it just for the sake of getting help. And with your cursor on that line, you press F1 and that will take you off to a jumping off point uh, into finding out the various help elements related to this. So if I want to know more about the write statement, here it is right here, write. ABOP statement, double click on that, and I think I made this observation previously, you have lots of really good code examples here that, that you can leverage well worth uh, kind of scanning down, and then I often like to consult the, the short reference as well, which basically just gives me all of the keywords that I could use. Now, there's really not a lot of documentation here, but uh, there is some documentation here at the bottom of this. And then a lot of times I can find things here, and then I can go back to the more complete reference for the sake of, of looking those things up. So uh, make good use of the help statement as, as a way of finding out how to do things that perhaps you, you may not know how to do. All right? So with all that being said, we are here at the end of our second uh, set of slides, and we are going to jump into our third set of slides, which is we will start with talking about ABOP parameters, and that likely is all we will uh, have the opportunity to cover today. And then we will start talking a little bit about conditional code and other things as well as we continue our voyage on the fundamental constructs in the ABOP programming language. So how do I get data from the user at runtime. There are a few different ways I could do that, but the way that we will start with and make most frequent use of is the parameter statement. The parameter statement will prompt the user to give us data 
when the program starts its execution. Now, technically speaking, the system is going to actually create a selection screen that the user can enter data in. And your textbook uh, will talk to you about some of the added features of this more than we are ready to talk about at the moment, but we, we do want to cover the basics so we can incorporate this into our, into our programs. The syntax of the parameter statement is really extremely similar to a data statement. Um, we just swap out the word parameters in place of the word data. Parameters age, type I. Parameters var1, type C, length 8. Var2, type I. Uh, you'll notice that in my second example, I have employed a chained statement. Um, which is fine. I'm just saving myself a little bit of typing by doing so here. There's really nothing else notable about it. My two examples illustrate that we can use both complete and incomplete data types with a parameter statement. There's at least one uh, oddity about the parameter statement, which is that the parameter name has to be eight characters or less. And I'm, so the, the variable name, the data object name, can, cannot be nine or more characters. The parameter name must be eight characters or less. And until I show you otherwise here in a few moments, you will see that the user is actually prompted with the parameter name. So if we go to our ABOP editor and I just type in the, the code that you're looking at here. Yes, sir. Parameter. So you say parameter var 1 type C length 8 comma. And this one you have to align manually here, var2. Now what's interesting about this is, is I am 99% sure that the singular version of parameter, which first of all, let's just make sure that this does pass syntax check on, on our system. Um, where's my little balance beam hit here? There we go. Um, I'm pretty sure that the singular version of this is one of the new elements in the just released version of ABOP. So yeah, you can make use of that, but do realize that the, the traditional format that has been around for a long time is, is the plural for form of that. So either one is fine. And, and so what's going to happen here is this. Notice age var1, var2. And so when we run it, this is the prompting that we get. Now notice, age is of type I, okay? So when I go to run this, I, I'm hitting letters on the keyboard. And you'll notice that nothing is actually happening here because it's only going to take numbers from me, okay? So two. I is an integer data type. So if I put a, a period here, notice it's not intelligent enough to strip off 
the not, you know, it considers this to still be a number, so it's going to take this from me. We'll actually, let, let's create some output to go with this to see. Um, var 1, type C, length 8. So notice, and I can, I can put numbers here, uh, I, it only gives me enough space to type in 8 characters. And I'm still banging on the keyboard, and, and nothing is, is happening here. So, in some respects, this is nicer than what you see in other programming languages because it does, at least in a minimal way, keep bogus data out of this. So let's just uh, produce some output here. Write uh, age. I'll do this. Age equals age. Write. I always like to do that, even though I don't have to there. Uh, var1 equals var1 and write var2 equals var2. Okay, so I'll save this. And so if I, if I type the age here as 31.4, and var1. See, the bad thing here is the user doesn't really know what var1 and var2 are. So we're going to have to solve that here. But I'll just type the word apple here. And I want you to pay really, really close attention to what I typed and what shows up in output here. Okay, so 31.4, apple, and then uh, 17. Okay, uh, let me. And now the user will give us this data back by hitting the execute button. And decimal places are not permitted. So notice it did let me type in the decimal place, but it, it won't actually let me send that back. So I kill that off. And so now I have 314, Apple, and 17. There's 314, Apple, and 17. Now, did you notice something that happened? It turned Apple into uppercase. Unless I do something to alter that, and notice when I went back, it converted. But for those of you that didn't see it the first time, there's the word lemon in all lowercase, execute, lemon, all uppercase. Now you might say to yourself, okay, well how do I get it to not turn everything into capital letters? And my answer to you is, this sounds like a really good place to make use of F1 help. Okay, so I go to F1 help and I see there's a lot of documentation here that would be really, really useful for me to look at, but I could also just look at the short reference here. And when I look at the short reference and I start scanning down the keywords here, I see this little guy right here called lowercase that looks really, really, really interesting. And so I want to know more about him. Lowercase prevents the conversion of the content of character-like fields to uppercase when transferring data between the input and the data object. And let's see if I click on that link there, if it even gives me some sample code. And uh, it didn't, I didn't actually see any sample code there for us to look at. Uh, but it does, you know, just says lowercase. And so, in fact, if I go back here, to my code, and for this guy right here, if we just add to this statement the keywords lowercase, now what it's actually going to do here is um, it will not, um, 
convert everything to lowercase. I've got my caps lock on, so notice if I type the word apple here with an uppercase A, um, what it really does is it preserves the case. Now, why does my output look as wonky as it does right here? Because numbers are right aligned, okay? And so I could fix that up with the use of a star in parentheses. Um, I could do some column alignment. I'm not going to do that for the sake of this example, but if this were actually a program I were turning in, I would want to fix that. Yes, sir? It rejects it, just like we saw when we tried to put a period in, right? Yeah, so that's good to know. Yes, sir? So since we just have variable two as type I, we can sit and type in <coughs> number. Uh-huh. Yep. You want to see me do that just for fun here? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, zero, one, two, three, four, five, six. Okay. Now that's as far as it's going to let me type into that parameters field, though. And so, uh, entry too long. Well, it actually, I think that number goes beyond the range of an I as a data type. And so, entry too long here is, is what I got. Okay, so note, and I put this here, I can use a keyword default, notice, not values, but the keyword default will let me put in a default value into a field which the user can edit. So I'll, I'll just continue with my var1 line here and I'll, I'll set the default value here to be onion. Okay? And so now when I run this, uh, the field is pre-populated with the value onion, but in fact the user can, can change that to uh, some other input that they would want to supply. Notice, okay, I, I put in that value and I execute. Notice it did not require me to put values in. It, it, it took, and it took empty fields and turned them to zero. Now you might say, hmm, how can I make it require input? Hmm, that sounds like another good trip to the help option, which, which we will not take at this moment, but which is there and which we may explore in the future. Yes, sir. Max? Uh, it looked like the zeros were like a good uh, That's interesting. Let's see if that, in fact, was the case. Uh, execute. I th it's just because var2 is longer than age, so it's, everything is, is just one character over there. Okay. And the only reason I got onion there was because that's the default value. If the user were to delete that and execute this, the default value for a string is just a null string here. For the, for the um, numeric values, it defaulted to zero. Now, this should put in the back of your mind the thought, hmm, I wonder if I give the user a screen and I ask them to type values in, and my program depends on them entering a value, might I need to do something to make sure I get a value? And will my teacher, when he run tests my program, run test it by leaving the fields empty to see what happens? That does sound like something that he might do. 
Okay, so you know, be thinking about the different ways that that this could play out. Um, I am going to bypass the a quick practice because I want to show you one other thing as as kind of our last hour. You don't even have the quick practice slide, so you're not you don't know we're bypassing it. But but we'll come back to that at the beginning of our class time. And and here's what I want to talk about: changing user prompting for parameters. What we are actually looking at here is something called selection text. And it is a facet of something called the text pool. And what this gives me the ability to do is take more control over the way things are presented to my, my users who are running my program. The important thing to realize about anything dealing with the text pool is, I'm going to kill this SAP GUI screen off because I don't need it, is I have to activate my program for what I'm about to show you to work. So I'm going to save this program and I am going to activate it. And so you saw down here at the bottom, object activated. And now, what I want to do is I want to give the user better prompting than age var1 and var2. How do I do that? Step one, I activate my program. Step two, I choose at the top menu, go to text elements, selection texts. And you will now notice that all of my parameter statements appear in this table. And I can change out the text here to enter your age, uh, maybe enter your favorite num favority, enter your favorite number, and enter, I don't know, something else, okay? Now, I save this, and I have to activate this as well. Remember back when I said there are other things that we may have to activate? Um, this is one of them. And notice, by the way, down in my menu bar what it says, text elements for name of my program saved in language EN. Okay, we'll come back to that in the future, uh, but uh, I will activate this. After I've activated this, I can now come back to my program, and when I run it, notice my prompting has changed. Okay? So I have to give my parameter statement, the items here can only have eight letters, but I can adjust them by way of the type selection. So now, let's be clear about this. I'm going to add another parameter statement. Um, var3 uh, type string, okay, period here, save this, and, and here's what you might find yourself doing, is saying, okay, I want to adjust that, so go to text element, selection text, and you're like, var3 is not there. Stupid abop, something is wrong, and what's wrong is I did not activate this. Okay, when I activate this, then and only then will I see those items added to this. 
Okay? You will also perhaps see some odd things happen where I'm going to wipe out age here. Okay, so it's gone. Save. Activate. Errors or problems. Oh, that's because I have a. Uh, that's interesting. But it's because that guy is still referenced here. So I'm going to get rid of that. Save. Activate. Okay. Go to text element selection text. Notice age is still there. Okay. But watch what's going to happen. Uh, for var3, uh, blah, you know, just type that is my very insightful prompting. When I go to activate this now, delete extraneous selection text. And if I say yes, boop, it got rid of age there. Okay. And so now when I go back and I do this, there, there is my, my prompting. Now, when we first write our programs involving the use of parameters, we do want to employ better prompting, but we don't have to go nuts with this, okay? You know, you don't have to write there, please enter your age, thank you. You know, you just say, you know, enter age or something like that and, and make sure that it's clear for the user is, is the point beyond this. So the process here, we save the program, we activate the program, then we go to text element selection text, find your parameter name in the table, put in the text value you want there, and then activate the selection text, okay? Questions about that? All right, let me show you one more thing to round out our time together today. This is, I, I show this to you not really because we're necessarily going to use this this semester, but because it falls into the category of something that I'm guessing that none of you have ever done in any other programming languages. Um, you write a program and you put on there, you know, enter your age, which is very, very English-centric. Suppose you work for a multinational company and there are people that will be running your program in Spain or France or Africa and, and they, they speak a different language. What do we do there? How do we fix that? Well, the solution for this is something called text symbols. Text symbols are attached to every program on a per program basis and are a part of what I mentioned a moment ago, which is the text pool. Now, the text pool, you can think of it as just a set of textual elements that are specifically designed for display to the user that are a companion to the actual computer code that you are writing. The text in the text pool each have a number that is a three-digit number. And we could start numbering at zero. I think zero, zero, zero is valid. I'm not 100% sure of that. But I know zero, zero, one is. And we could number sequentially. Or the number could correspond to a coding scheme that would be uh, something that would have some other meaning to us. The idea is this. Then, what I do in my program is instead of coding in literal text, I make reference to the text pool. All right, so let me show you what I am talking about. I'm going to come back here and wipe out my code here. 
So what you have undoubtedly done in other programming languages is something like this. Write, and I got the slash going the wrong way. Write, hello world. Okay. Well, suppose you want to actually make this something that is language independent. What you could do is any place where you would otherwise be inclined to key in a string literal, you could do this. You could type in the keyword text, dash, followed by a three-digit number, and we'll just use 001. Now, when I have done that, I am now making reference to the text pool. So you'll notice that when I, when I save this, and then when I go to execute this, um, right, line. Oh, I don't think it, it likes that butting right up to that is why it's complaining about that. So let me fix that. That's one of those quirks of the slash. Okay, so I got hello world, but then I didn't get anything here for my second write statement. And you can probably guess why, based on what we observed a moment ago. Uh, first of all, I'm going to have to activate this. Okay, and then, and I'm going to go back to my PowerPoint slide, I access the text pool, very similar to what we did a moment ago, go to text elements, but this time I'm going to visit text symbols. So go to text elements, text symbols. Now, in fact, you might have noticed this, it's kind of ironic. If, if I go back here, go to text elements, see I have three choices, list heading, selection text, and text symbols. It kind of almost doesn't depend on which one of these I pick, because once I get to this screen, I can switch based on tabs anyhow. Okay, there's my old selection text that's going to get wiped out here in a second as being irrelevant. But here's my text symbols, okay, and, and in my program, I used what text symbol? 001. Okay, so notice I didn't get spotted that number, but what I can do is if I double click on that, it will also navigate me here to this location. That's called forward navigation, and it's something that we'll see a little bit later on in the semesters being really useful. So I'm going to change this, and I'm going to say uh, another greeting to say hello. Okay, and so I save this, and you do have to set the length of your message, but it'll count it up for you automatically and put that in. All right, and I'll come back to why this is important in a moment here. So I, I do activate this, and now when I go back and run my program, I get another greeting to say hello. All right, now, I said that this is useful for foreign language translation. How does that work? Go to translation. All right, so the original language of my program is English. I want to target German. Notice I could change my target language to any other language that's configured in the system, and our system only has German as another available language. Okay, so, you know, we're not set up for super multilingualness here. Now, this is something that I don't work with a whole lot, but what's actually happening here is this is my text symbol in English. 
Here, I would type in the German equivalent of that, which I'm just going to type here, hello in German, okay? Which is clearly not the German equivalent. Now, when I typed in the English text, that was 29 characters wide. By default now, in German, I have 29 characters to play with. If I wanted to, when I typed in the English, I could have said, okay, make this 50 characters wide, and then the translators would have 50 characters to work with. This gets actually, this whole system here is really kind of unique. And like I said, I haven't really done much with this. But the idea is now that if I were to save this, it goes into what's called a proposal pool. And you'll notice that this turned to yellow here. What companies will do is they will hire translators. And the translators will look at the English and they'll look at the other language. And then they have the ability to vote on whether that's a good translation or not and to suggest other translations. And it, it really kind of is this whole system for making sure you have a good translation. But once they say, yes, this is a good translation, which I think is, I can change the quality status of this. So um, I pick this, uh, select the proposal text. I thought I was doing that. Hello in German, create A. Okay, I just gave it, it knows it's green now. I just gave it basically a thumbs up and said, yeah, this is what we're actually going to use here. Now, when I go back and run this, it still says another, it didn't give me the German equivalent. Okay, how do I, how do I see the German equivalent? Not going to do this. But if I logged in, you know, on the login screen, it asks you what language. If I logged in and was German, it would show me the German text instead of showing me the English text. So if you go to work for a company, and, and this is a project one of our, or a few of our graduates handled a few years ago when their American company bought an international affiliate, they had to go through a huge array of ABAP programs look for every instance where there was hard-coded in an English language version and set it up for internationalization. Now, in light of that being the case, there is a second way that you could do this. You could take, and this is this line right here in our PowerPoint slides, anywhere where you have a literal in there. You could just put in parentheses a number and that now is a reference to the text pool. So I could have done this. I could say, hello world, and then put in parentheses uh, 007. And now, if I'm in English, which is the default language, it will show hello world. But we will now see if I save this and I've got to, um, I activated it. And then if I double click on it, for forward navigation, it takes me back to my text pool here. And so the hello world there is what I got as the default American text, but I can now go into the translation and put in the non-American text. And when the user runs it, that will, in this instance, give the other language equivalent in place of hello world. 
we won't be doing foreign language translation. We will be doing the parameters thing. But I wanted you to see this because chances are pretty good it's not something you've seen in other programming languages. Questions? All right, well, we are out of time for today.